welcome to episode 212 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. A good day to you, brother. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Listen, I'm great. We're, I think we're kind of wrapping up the official part of this series, right? That we've been doing on the Lord's Supper with yes. one more episode to come. That's going to be a question cast, particularly related to the Lord's Supper. We'll get into that in a little bit. Yes. But before we do that, that was just a teaser. That was just to get people stoked about 212. But before we get to all the good, meaty, delicious, theological goodness, that was a strange pun that I didn't intend because, again, we're talking about the Lord's <laughs> Supper. Let's do some affirmations and denials. What do you yes. want to start with this week? Deny or affirm? What do you want to do? Why don't you start with your affirmation? Oh, my goodness. All right. So... I am going back to the well, and it's the well that is filled with amazing music. So I have, as you know, I started this tradition of I'm trying to balance out my music affirmations, but I'm going to start with the one that I think is the more awesome of the two. So once again, I'm affirming with some brand new music. 2020, for whatever reason, has been just an amazing year of all kinds of great music that has been released. And in some ways I'm still catching up to that. So I'm affirming some more hardcore music, which I know oh, is man. much to your delight. I think you, you meant to say chagrin. <laughs> much to your great overwhelming joy. And I'm affirming with a band called, actually, you know, what's funny is let me just say, now that we've, we've made this joke about how uh, we appreciate different styles of music there's almost no way for me to say the names of these bands now without it being funny because these <laughs> names are only hardcore band names. Yeah, so the oh, yeah. name of this band is called Deathbreaker. Oh man. Like you're ne you're never going to find an album. Oh, let me maybe say it this way. You're probably unlikely to find an album like called something like Deathbreaker by let's say Chris Tomlin. That doesn't seem like maybe he could write that music. <laughs> but it, it seems like this is like of a variety that is uniquely hardcore. So this is a band called Deathbreaker. They are formerly called Redeem the Exile, which is also a super sweet name. They're a post-hardcore band out of Olympia, Washington. They just released an album called Isolate, and it's super great. It, this is like your quintessential hardcore music. It's so well done. It's so tight. It's expertly mixed. It's beautiful. So I'd encourage everybody to go check that out. If you're of that persuasion, if you have a turn of mind or interest in hardcore music, this is just a wonderful specimen of that particular style. So Deathbreaker, um, go check out their new album, Isolate. The second piece, so again, I'm trying to balance this out a little bit. So something for everybody here, because we're equal opportunity. I have been on the search for a long time for the quintessential, the definitive, if you will, album that represents the Lord of the Rings soundtrack, the one album to rule them all. <laughs> See what I did there? And, and in the darkness, bind them. <laughs> yes. So if I was going to say, if you're looking to be bound in the dark, that's not what I mean. That if sounds looking, like a pretty good hardcore band name, bound in the well dark. Well done. Well done right there. Listen, I feel this like... Just got, uh, yeah, I feel all right. Next, we'll see you next week, everyone. <laughs> Listen, this just got swapped on me in a totally unexpected way, and I'm speechless. 
I will, though, say I'm affirming with a particular album that represents Lord of the Rings and all of the beautiful music that's a part of those movies in particular, the most recent ones. That album is called Lord of the Rings Trilogy, and it's by the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra, Couch End Festival Chorus in Rain. This, to me, I, honestly, I've listened to all the different iterations that have been put together. I think almost all of them that exist for the soundtracks. This, by far to me, is the best. The City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra is, of course, impeccable. And I think their interpretation of the music, the way in which they bring different dynamics to its expression, is absolutely glorious. It's got all the wonderful choral pieces because there's like really, I don't know if people realize this, in those movies, amazing choral pieces. Yeah. So this album is great for study. It's great for concentration. It's great if you just want to rock out and get your classical music on. So I think these two, everybody should go check both of them out, but I'm hoping that they'll appeal maybe to different audiences. So whether you want to go Deathbreaker, by Isolate, or Lord of the Rings, the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra, both in total affirmation this week. Nice, nice. I, I can dig the concept of what you're getting at here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're pretty much equal but opposite because I made the case before about how, to me, one of the beauties of hardcore music is it's, it has many movements. It's yeah. very much orchestral. So I'm trying to pair these together in a way that I think will be pleasing. So try them out. They're, they're worth a listen. I, have you listened? Like, are you a soundtrack guy? Do you listen mm, to soundtracks? Not really, no. No. I mean, I don't really listen to a lot of music anymore. Well, this died quickly. It did, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I can understand the benefit of listening to Lord of the Rings soundtrack. <laughs> Okay, hold hold up, hold up. Let, let me see if what? I can pull this out. Let, let me piggyback okay, on your affirmation go, go real ahead, quick. Go ahead. I've been trying out this new app, uh, which is available for um, kind of the a Apple ecosystem. I think they have it on like MacBook, but also iPhone, whatever. It's called Endel, E-N-D-E-L. And what it does, it's kind of kind of niche, but I really dig it. I'm not sure if it's worth, I'm on a free trial. I'm not sure if it's worth the cost that it's going to be to keep it. But what it does is it uses machine learning to generate soundscapes based on your circadian rhythms and then some other bi like biometric stuff. So wow. like, it, you know, like you have your natural circadian rhythms and, you know, they swell and dip throughout the day. And so when you're on like the upswing of a circadian rhythm and you're gaining energy, the music sort of swells to the peak and then it starts to come back down as you fade. Um, if you are running, for example, and you have like an Apple watch that transmits your heart rate, it'll sync the music to your heart rate. Uh, if it's cloudy out or if there's not a lot of natural light, it'll take that into account because that affects your circadian rhythms. Um, so it's just a cool concept. And the only reason I bring that up is it's kind of the same idea as like listening to the Lord of the Rings when you're like trying to study or read is a lot of times like listening to music isn't great when you're trying to read, but these kinds of instrumental music really can help kind of like focus you. So I've been trying this out. It's not cheap if you stay on the the permanent one. I think it's like $25 a year, which isn't terrible, um, especially if it actually helps you. But I understand the benefit of listening to instrumental music or something like that. I don't understand the benefit of listening to hardcore music. <laughs> so you're, I'm going to have to trust you on that one. I knew that was coming. Or here's what our listeners could do. They could just pick up those two albums and it's basically the same, the whole same emphasis it's of this true. app. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, but you have is, to, then you have to one, do it manually. Well, that's true. One is going to ramp you up and one is going to ramp you down. Yes. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, actually, I just looked this up. It's pretty impressive. 
If, yeah. if it does what it promises or what it purports to do, this idea of trying to, it's a brilliant idea. Basically, it's trying to link up not only like your mood, but essentially like your whole energy level right. with music that's appropriate to those things yeah. or music that might encourage you if it knows you're moving in a particular trajectory right. or direction to basically help emphasize or empower that trend. Yeah. It's, this is, this is the future people. Well, and, and it's, I, I didn't mean to like steal your affirmation. Now that's what we're talking no, about my thing. By all means. Um, it, it's not precisely accurate to say that it's not ever repeating. Cause obviously like there's a limited number of, like um layers that they use but it is definitely variable so you can listen like what i'll do is i'll have this going while i'm working just kind of as background noise and like you can listen to the thing for eight hours and it doesn't sound like you're listening to the exact same thing for eight hours right because it changes with those different um variabilities and then because it's taking into account you know like it uses your gps location cross-references that with the weather and then depending on how much natural light you should be exposed to if you're outside it's it's using that um if you were walking or running it's going to use that so it does it does change as you use it but yeah, I don't know how we started talking about my sub affirmation more than your original affirmation. No, this is fine because now it's created in my mind this whole alternate. It, I have this vision now. I'd like to think that it's keeping track of everything that's happening in your mind. And so you're online, you're surfing the internet, and then you go to Facebook. You, you're listening to like this wonderful, empowering, kind of quiet, calm, classical music maybe Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven. And then you see heresy posted on Facebook and immediately (laughs) jumps to eye of the tiger. There you go. There you go. And like a hardcore version of eye of the tiger, like a metal version. Yes. And you're just like, this is perfect. So yeah. All right. Enough about me. What are you affirming this week? So I'm going to get a little bit meta. Uh, We talked a little bit about this last week on the, the podcast. I'm affirming democracy. And so right now it's Saturday night. Uh, it's not quite accurate to say that the election is concluded. Technically, the c- election is not concluded until the vice president, the current vice president, certifies the results of the election, which doesn't actually happen until like early January. But at this point, it looks as though Joe Biden uh, and Kamala Harris have won the presidency. So I'm not necessarily affirming the results of this election because I think that this is not a good thing, uh, earth, humanly speaking, for our country or for our democracy. But what I am affirming is that the system, by and large, worked the way it's supposed to. And now I know we, we probably have some people who are, are skeptical of the results. I think there's good reasons to be a little bit skeptical about some of the weirdness that happened with this election uh, in terms of how the counting happened. But for the most part, there wasn't violence. There wasn't unrest. It doesn't look as though we're going to have some sort of strange coup. We don't have military in the streets. For the most part, the American people went out, they expressed their will, and the country is moving forward. Um, And who knows, in four years, we may have President Biden again, we may have President Harris again, uh, or we may have somebody totally different. We don't know. But the, the democracy that we're in, the constitutional republic, has as baked into it the idea that the will of the people must be supreme in terms of who who takes particular offices. So I'm affirming democracy because, you know, in, in terms of political theory, there's a lot of different possibilities and a lot of different ways that governments can be arranged. And so far, our constitutional republic has been the most stable 
uh, democratic system in all of history so far. Now, who knows? We, you know, we, there might be something that comes down the road in the future that's more stable. But so far, our democracy has served its purpose for you know over 200 years now, give or take. So I'm affirming democracy. I'm affirming the fact that even in a really polarized, divided uh, context, our system uh, to elect officials still basically worked the way it was intended and still was basically peaceful. Um, and, you know, I just I'm just thankful to live in a country where we have the ability to express our voice, to to make our will known. And one thing that I think is interesting, I don't I don't really endorse the Ben Shapiro show, but I, I think it's useful sometimes to listen to for the sake of of a more conservative political commentary. So much of what you get in political commentary is just so far to the left that it's not really useful. And maybe, maybe Ben Shapiro is so far to the right. He's not useful either. I don't know, but he's made the point that as, even though we lost Republican conservative voices, lost the presidency, or it looked at the time looked like we were going to lose the presidency. This actually is a, uh, a stunning example of how checks and balances are supposed to work, right? right. We were all kind of terrified about what a, a Biden-Harris presidency might look like. And now, even though there's an extremely strong radical agenda that it actually would change the very fabric of our of our constitutional republic if left unchecked, we have a most likely have a, a, a majority in the Senate which means that that agenda is going to be very difficult to put through. We we don't have a, a clear majority in the House, which makes it even more difficult for those agendas to get pushed through. And now we have a Supreme Court that is going to put proper checks on both the executive and the legislative branch. So the system of checks and balances is working exactly what it is. And the, the American people are roughly divided 50-50. The Senate is roughly divided 50-50. The presidential vote was roughly divided 50-50. And the House is divided 50-50. So as far as it goes, uh, it seems to be working the way it was intended. So I'm thankful that we live in this uh, in this constitutional republic, even though the presidency didn't really go the way we wanted it to this time. I'm still thankful. Yeah, right on. That's well said. It did sound like a bit that you were setting up a, a bid for yourself for 2024. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm announcing my candidacy. Yes. All right. You uh, heard you know, it here it, first. It's, it's interesting. There are several uh, town level or county level um, positions that don't ever have anyone running for it. And I always write myself in. And this year, our county or our, our polling location published the final counts for all of the different positions that were voted on for each ticket. And I only lost a couple of the spots by four people. So uh, the, one of the winners only received five votes. So I just need to campaign like a tiny bit and I'll be set. I can start my, my rise to power here. You probably know enough people personally to get that vote. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I could probably just like talk to enough people at the like polling location and be like, you know, this, but the problem is, like, I don't even know what's on the ballot until I get there. I don't know what has someone running and what doesn't. So, true. I mean, I could probably do a little bit of research ahead of time and figure that true. out. But. So, so what you're saying is, you approach your political offices with the same preparedness that we approach every episode of this podcast. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe a little bit more, but not much. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, uh, certainly, I'm with you. I mean. I think among lots of people, Christians and even non-believers, it's been cliche in this season for some to say we ought to be appreciative, but it's cliche because it's true. And I think that yeah. this is a great blessing. I have a really good friend who pioneered an organization that works with disadvantaged and orphaned children in Southern Africa. 
And until really you come into close contact with people who this is not like their normal way of life to have peaceful transitions of power or to even have a say in the way in which a country is ruled or to have some influence in their leadership, it's really hard to even begin to imagine what it's like to not live in a place where so blessed that we do, where we feel like we have a sense of control or influence or that we're just not afraid. Right. And so to go from one leader to the next without this big sense of not knowing if the world is going to fall apart for you is something that is really actually, I think, unparalleled in you in the course of history, like you're saying that yeah. that's not a normal experience. So really, we ought to give God praise that we live in such a really comfortable and pleasant place, even in the current state of things with respect to no matter how you feel about the Christian agenda. And we've I think you and I have been outspoken about uh, the kind of the use of the P word persecution among Christians yeah. in this season in particular, especially in the, in the Western culture. But even beyond that, the best truth is that God is still in control of all these things. And so he's still, the nations are still like dust in his scales that like he's weighing right. out. So it's just wonderful to know at the end of all things that one to, to be blessed in a place where even among that dust, we've got among some of the best dust in all of yeah. history and that God is still bringing about his will in a profound and unequivocal way. It's just, no, there's just lots of reason to praise him. Yeah. There's always lots of reasons to praise him, but this wow, well is, this is just one of them. You just one up me even beyond that. I did. I that did. Was Sometimes I try. So <laughs> I think we're on you now for denials. What do you got? Yeah. So I'll try to keep this brief. I'm also going to go a little bit meta meta. And I think that this was, or this is, it might be a, a reprise or to keep with the musical theme, like a redux. But I was thinking recently in some time of meditation and prayer of just what a wonderful thing it is to have legacy in your life that's of a spiritual nature, especially if you've inherited that from relatives. And so I'm denying against, once again, creating some kind of testimonial hierarchy. I just think hierarchical structures and taxonomy, even if we internalize it subtly when it comes to testimony, is really unhelpful and I think sometimes profoundly destructive. And what I mean by that is, especially I'm not a parent, but if you're a parent who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and perhaps you came from a family that wasn't a believer or you came from a nominal Christian family and you're working hard, let's say, to catechize your children or to bring them up and rear them in the faith and an admonition of the Lord, that that is such a worthy endeavor that for any person who is an adult now to look back on that testimony and think that that is somehow a subgenre or it is underneath some kind of more, say, radical story. I just think that there's such a beautiful testimony in being able to grow up in a space where you never knew anything except the gospel truth in word and an expression and an yeah. example. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just denying against that kind of thought because I think that we all from time to time have that kind of thought, whether we grew up in that experience or we didn't. And it's just really unhelpful. I just think it's, it's sometimes even disrespectful to those who have worked really, really hard by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be examples to us in faith so that there might be children who grew up in an experience where they, that's the only thing that they knew. And that is such a glorious truth yeah. that it should be celebrated in equal measure. It's, either way, it's God doing this amazing work. Because I was thinking recently, actually, I've had this thought for a long time. That for me, something that's in my own mind bordered on heretical. And the thought was something like this. I would think, I find it, I said this in the podcast before, I find it easier to understand God doing these massive miracles in creation because he owns all this stuff. It belongs to him. It's something that he created and put together. And so that for me is not a a bridge too far to cross. He can do whatever he wants with every single molecule of the universe. 
and this is where sometimes it's going to border on the heretical. So hang with me for just a second. What I find more miraculous though, the bigger miracle, if you will, is when God changes the human heart, because I just know how stubborn and obstinate and stiff necked I am. So I think that it's just more easy for me to believe in the crossing of the Red Sea than for God to take like the really obstinate person who is a God hater and make them a lover of Christ and then a servant of all. That's the kind of thing that I say, like, isn't that more quote unquote difficult for God to do? So I never, I was really hesitant in sharing that kind of thought with people. And then recently I read a sermon by, by, uh, by Spurgeon who said the same thing, but far more eloquently. He actually compared it to, he said it was easier for God to have the Israelites come out in that exodus than it was for the exodus of the heart. And I thought, oh my word, I'm not the only one. Praise the Lord. So, But this idea, so like all that to say, this is always in every way God's work. Whatever the testimony is, it is God's work. And it is an incredible and amazing work. So we shouldn't belittle that work no matter how it's manifest. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And you know, obviously, God it, talking about what is more difficult for God—that's an anthropomorphism, exactly. But, but the scripture—I mean, the scripture kind of uses some of that language, right? It, yes, it talks it does. about, you know, Jesus says, "Oh, that, oh, Jerusalem, that you that you would have turned to me." You know, he he kind of expresses this hypothetical. Uh, longing that he has and almost expresses, and, but it's not hypothetical, but what I mean right. is he expresses this longing that he has in human language to gather the people of Israel to himself. Now, obviously, if he had, if he had wanted in the grand scheme of things to gather those people to himself, he would have, but he uses human language to express something true about the seriousness of what it is that God does in regenerating the heart. Right on. It's, it's, the most miraculous thing that he does. And you're right. Like God assembling the universe, it, it's no big deal. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, like God creating out of nothing is it's, it's almost like it, it just makes sense, but God taking someone that he should, uh, by all accounts should abandon to their own, uh, their own death, their own damaging desires and leave them up to that him doing the opposite is is the true miracle like it's it's god doing the unexpected it's it's right. almost almost like god is acting out of character yes. because of his great love for for that person he acts out of character by not punishing sin now go back and listen to our atonement series that we did uh, if you're thinking i'm a heretic cuz i just said that go back and listen to that we we spent like six episodes talking about all the different atonement theories but all that to say you're absolutely right i think i think you know i can remember real distinctly my friend tim crenshaw who is the best man in my wedding my my best friend growing up one of the people who's instrumental in coming uh, in my coming to the faith, I remember a time we were sitting in his, he had this old beat up gold, uh, Chevy Astro van and we were sitting in the driveway. He had driven me home from school. I remember it really clearly. And he, he said to me, you know, I wish that I had a conversion story like yours. Cause I, I wasn't raised in a Christian home and, and my conversion story was very sudden. It was very, very much like one day I was living totally like the world. And the next day I was just convicted of my sin and totally like significant things in my life just stopped being significant to me. And I, I looked to him and I said, you know, Tim, you never remember a time where you didn't love Jesus. And I would, I would give anything to have that testimony. Um, and, and I think it's true. And, and from someone who did not grow up in a Christian home, who spent many years 
uh, apart from God and, and many years not at all concerned of the things of Christ. I mean, I, I knew who Jesus was. I, I knew about Jesus. I, I had spent a little bit of time in the church. But uh, as someone who comes from that background, who had one of those turnaround ex- experiences, the the conversion experience of someone who never knew a life apart from Christ, uh, I think is so much more desirable. So kudos to the Christian parents who are striving right to give their children that um, that experience. I think I think that that's a absolutely important work that that a lot of people overlook. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, right on, Christian parents. Keep the faith. Keep yeah. going after that. Keep catechizing. Keep having the daily times of prayer. Keep going after it because I know those things are hard. And I have so many really, really close friends with young children who I know it's exhausting and it seems like it's not making a difference and they're not really paying attention. It's just a, a struggle and a battle every day. And I've also seen the fruit of some of that stuff from at the outside. Yeah. And man, is it such good fruit. So yeah. keep after it. So yes. before like this whole episode, because we could just we could just talk now about that for like an we entire could. four or five hours. What are you denying against? So I'm denying against myself in that. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, sometimes podcasters try to be clever and sometimes we uh, we come up with something in like perfect timing and it, it oh, just works yes. out. Okay. I got you. I got I'm you. I'm denying about against myself because I came up with a great title for the Zwinglian view. You like did two days after we recorded the episode you on did. the Zwinglian view. So we talked about transubstantiation, which is the Roman Catholic view. We talked about consubstantiation, which although they hate it, there's no better term for it. That's the Lutheran view. And I was like, man, I wish there was a shorthand term for the Zwinglian memorial view that followed that same pattern. And then it came to me. We should call it non-substantiation, <laughs> which they may not like it because we're like kind of comparing them. But like it's the perfect description. So I'm it denying fits. it's myself for coming up with that too late to actually be of use in this series. It fits. When you texted me that... I was at work and I actually shook my fist to the skies I know. as if to say like, why is this coming out now? We should have, we should have titled that episode that because I know. it's beautiful clickbait. And I actually think again, in, in keeping with that kind of very nice brief description, it does work, right? I mean, actually yeah. I think encapsulated in that is a lot of the expression that we were talking about, how this idea of memorialism is in some ways like a push against everything that we talked about up to right. that point. Yeah. And so the non substantiation, nothing at all. Right. I, I don't know. I it's think good. it's so good. It's, it's good. good. It's good. I mean, yeah. in case you were looking for a little affirmation, can I, can I counteract your own denial of yourself by, can I affirm you and say, yes, right I, on. I thought about going back and just, just really obviously editing every time we said Zwingli in a memorial. <laughs> It'd be like there's this old episode of The Simpsons where they're watching like a video and it's it's like a celebrity and he's talking in his normal voice. And then out of nowhere, this other person's voice comes in and like yes. replaces the name. Perfect. I thought about doing that because it'd be funny because there'd be times where you're talking and then I'd come in and be like non-substantiation. <laughs> and it would be like the same cadence every time. But That's great. I actually heard it as like one of those quintessential like woman robot voices like non substantiation. Oh yeah. Like the, like the Microsoft voice. That'd yes. be even funnier. Yes. So yeah, good. But- yeah. I, I love that. That's a great segue though, because again, we're finishing out in some ways this, uh, the official part of the series on the Lord's supper. And so hopefully people have been tracking with us, but if they haven't, we started all the way back with transubstantiation, looking right. at the Roman Catholic view. 
We move to consubstantiation, as you said, moving into what is traditionally the Lutheran view. And again, these are the terms that we think are best descriptive of that particular worldview that encapsulated the best. Not everybody would adopt that term, but that's the one that we use to describe it. Then we move last week into Zwinglianism, which was the memorialistic view of the Lord's Supper. And we're rounding this all out with the Reformed view. And the thing about this is people are going to accuse us of being biased. But the thing about this is we believe in all ways, but especially in this one, I think, that the Reformed perspective really is the most cogent understanding of the Lord's Supper and what it represents. And then even beyond that, that that's, of course, what the Bible teaches. So this right. is where we ended up. But it, I'm hoping that people will see like the train of thought, even like the development of these ideas, some of which we talked about before. So let me start by saying this is how I would say like this is what makes it different. This is why we're ending here, because we've talked a lot. Hopefully people have perceived that we uh, talked around uh, what I would say are like three separate issues in the Lord's Supper. There's, there's a seal, there's significance, and there's a sacramental union. And so right. each of those views are trying to treat each of those things. And really the reform perspective treats them all in consummate harmony in the best and most cogent way possible that comports with the scriptures. And so I want to start with what I would say is this statement that is the distinctive here. And that is that Christ is sacramentally present with his people through the supper as they feed upon him in faith. That is the heart of biblical teaching. And that is the reform doctrine regarding the Lord's Supper. Right. And so to understand Calvin's view of this, ju just like we talked about how Luther's view of God's declarative statements creating a new reality is instrumental in how he understands uh, what happens in justification, and then he kind of copies and pastes that into the top of his, his sacramental theology. Right. The same is true in a sense of, of Calvin in that Calvin understood that all of the benefits that God gives his people come to his people because God is showering those benefits onto Christ. Right and on. then in union with Christ, those benefits extend covenantally from Christ to his people. So Christ is first justified. And it, it sounds weird to talk about Christ being justified. But, but if you think about what happens in the death and resurrection of Christ, there's certainly more than just a legal declaration that's going on in the death and resurrection of Christ. But the resurrection is at the very least God's statement that Christ was actually innocent. Yes, it was his exactly. statement to the world, right? Christ Christ dies on the cross, and Calvin actually makes, we, this is for a different episode, but Calvin makes a big deal out of the fact that Christ was condemned by an earthly court as a criminal, even though he was innocent, and that this earthly court was standing in the place of God, condemning Christ for a sin he did not commit. If Christ had stayed in the grave, it would have been as if the Father said, this condemnation was just, he got what he deserved. But because the Son rises from the grave, because death cannot hold him, it he demonstrates it has no claim on it, and it's the Father's resurrection of Christ that proclaims Christ as justified. Now that that justification, just as we were buried him in him, and if we die a death like his, we will be raised to a resurrection like his. So he, we die... And we were raised with him as an extension of his resurrection. Now, that logic that Calvin uses in understanding uh, resurrection, understanding justification, just as Luther copied and pasted that into his sacramental theology, 
both in baptism and the Lord's Supper, but in the Lord's Supper here, Calvin also copies and pastes that here. And and so what we see in, in the Lord's Supper, according to Calvin, is that because we are united to Christ by faith, that when we partake of this sign by faith, which Christ told us was feasting on his body and blood, that when we partake of this sign by faith, that we feast on Christ and we're nourished by Christ by faith because of our union with him. So this concept of union with Christ is central to everything going on in Calvin's program. And if you miss that, then that's a huge problem. You're going to misunderstand everything. So sometimes I hear people, well-intentioned people who are trying to build bridges within the, the, the reformational family, right? So Lutherans, uh, Anabaptist or not Anabaptists, Lutherans, Anglicans, Whoa. you know, reformed Protestants, Baptists, people are trying to build bridges. A lot of times I'll hear people say there's no real difference between what Luther thought about justification and what Calvin thought about justification. And while they're, they share a lot in common, there are certainly differences yes. for, for Luther. Justification is entirely a declarative act that has to do with, with, Christ declaring humans uh, just, where for Calvin, justification really is more about God declaring Christ just, right. and then that that benefit flowing to yes. to those who are united with Him. So, yes. so we have to understand that union with Christ really is the central motif that comes about. Justification flows from union with Christ. Sanctification flows from union with Christ, and it's because of this this mystical union with Christ, that the sacramental union of Christ with the sign is efficacious for us. It's not because, and this is where Luther and the Roman Catholic view, and for the sake of of simple categorization, I'm going to treat them together. The Lutheran and the Roman Catholic view both rely on a physical substantial change of some sort. Either the bread is changed into body or the body is added to the bread, but in some way there's a tangible physical presence that that is brought into your body. The union is is carnal, it's corporeal. Right. His body comes into our body and then that's the union. That's what happens. In the 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 um non-substantiation view it's entirely about faith. It's entirely about our statement and our confession. Basically, partaking in the Lord's Supper is another way to confess your faith and to trust in God. And it's not materially different than just saying, I believe in Jesus or just trusting in Jesus. It's just another way to express it. But for the reform view, we actually partake of Christ and this partaking is wrought by faith. So it's right. not quite the same as what what um, Zwingli is saying. And I want to read, just to sort of frame this, I want to read this out of the Institutes. And this is from his section on the Institutes, which is in book, on the Lord's Supper, which is in book four. And it's, um, uh, I believe, let's see, it would have been good for me to like get this ready before I started talking. Um, it's chapter 17 of book four, and it is section 19. And he starts off this section by saying the presence of Christ in the supper, we must hold to be such as neither affixes him to the element of bread, nor encloses him in bread, nor circumscribes him in any way. This would obviously detract from his celestial glory. And it must moreover be such as neither divests him of his just dimensions, nor dissevers him by difference of place, nor assigns him a body of boundless dimensions diffused through heaven and earth. So what he's saying there is whatever we say about Christ's presence in the supper, we can't say that he's constrained to a specific spot 
right. in reference to his deity or that he is not constrained to a specific spot in reference to his humanity. We have to keep those two things separate. And so the, the genius of Calvin's position is not that it somehow divides the two positions, that it somehow like finds the golden mean. It's right. that it's an entirely third option. It's not saying, well, you know, you take a little bit of the substance view and a little bit of the non-substance view and you find somewhere in the middle. He's saying, no, no, you guys are, are asking completely the wrong question entirely. That's it. Oh, that, That's all I, I got. That, well, that was great. You stole everything I wanted to say. Well, everything. you know, I tried. Yeah, that, was, that was everything. Well, this has been a great episode. <laughs> um, no, so I'm with you. In fact, one of the things I was going to say, so let me just say it a slightly different way because you already said it, was there's a tendency to think that we're basically bookended on this spectrum by like, the non-substantiation view. I love that you just went into that. You said non-substantiation, like just full bore right into it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, unapologetic. So we're, we're bookended by this like non-substantiation view. And then the other end, we have the Lutheran and the Roman Catholic view. And that somehow in the middle somewhere is the reform perspective, which is kind of taking like the best of both worlds and kind of amalgamating them in a way that we find that is at least compatible with the scriptures. It's actually on a different plane altogether. Right. And, and the reason, at least in part, is because of something that you said, and I think this is worth repeating, and that is Calvin was very clear that there is a justifying that needs to take place. There's a justification that takes place from God, the father to the son. It's not the same kind that we think of in our sense, because we're right. receiving a blessing or a benefit that is transcendent. That's outside of ourselves. We're being gifted this justification by association with Christ, by being in Christ, or having union with Christ. But there's no doubt that the way the Bible speaks and the logic that is required under God's admission of justice is that Jesus Christ needs to be vetted by God the Father to ensure that there was complete and full obedience. And the fruit of that obedience, the proof of the pudding and the eating, was that the grave could not contain him right. because it was unjust punishment for someone who did not deserve or fit the crime. So because of that, we have God vetting or justifying Jesus Christ. And then actually, I think this spills into like a larger context, which is the proper understanding of what it means to be united with Christ, even on this earth now, as we sit on this dusty rock and we interact in our services and with one another on the Lord's day. What does it mean to be in the presence of Christ? Because sometimes there's this weird sense that, you know, we hear this language of Jesus walking among us as if that's like a thing. So, so how do we understand right. that? And following Calvin... The Reformed have tried to keep in mind both this reality of Christ's ascension, wherein Christ's true human nature is now in heaven awaiting his return, and at the same time, the real presence of Christ in the sacrament. So through Christ's true human nature, though, though Christ's true human nature is in heaven, the believer is going to receive all of his saving benefits because through faith, the Holy Spirit has united the believer here on earth to Christ in heaven. So that in of itself is so much of the Christian life, but it's particularly applied in the Lord's Supper as we understand it in the Reformed perspective. And that's really just good Christology, and it's a proper understanding of what it means to be in the presence of Jesus because Jesus is categorically in heaven, and the believer can receive right. his true body and blood because the same Holy Spirit ensures that those already in union with Christ receive his true body and blood when they take bread and wine or grape juice in faith. So in the words of the institution, which you quoted, the body of Christ is not brought down to us. You know, that is, it's not localized on an altar in, with, or under, as like the Lutherans might argue. But instead, 
the believer is able to feed upon Christ who sits at God's right hand through the power of the Holy Spirit, who ensures that we truly received what is promised. And actually, if you think about it, that's a way better thing. Yeah. Like if that's what the Bible tells us and anything that we try to do, that's not that is actually trying to create something that ends up being a shadow of that thing. So the manner of reception is faith. And since it is the soul, not the body, which receives the reality of what is promised. Well, of course the mouth and the tongue and the intestines receive this bread and wine. That's all that it is. But when we eat the consecrated bread and we drink the wine of the grape juice through faith, the Holy Spirit ensures that we receive the true body and blood of Christ, which is in heaven because we are in union with him. So it's basically just as like Augustine had said, right? Believe and thou hast eaten. I probably right. should have just said that to begin yeah. with. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you know, Augustine is answering other questions too. That you sure, know, Of course. He, he's also trying to address other things that are going on in of the course. church. But, you know, I, I think that one of the other things that I, I think is important to remember is one of Calvin's overriding principles is, is that we not only get Christ in union with Christ, but we get the whole Christ. So a lot of times people sort of separate, unintentionally separate Christ, his divinity from his humanity in one way or another. Right. Right. Yes. And so, so we, we think about, we get Jesus, meaning we get to be with God. Well, yes, that's true. And you and I have said that several times, like that's the beauty of the gospels. We get God. But yeah. on top of that, we also get, we also get the human Christ, right? It's the right. God's man. Amen. It's the man, Jesus Christ, who is the mediator between God and man. So it, it as this is going to sound really weird, but we get something better than just getting God. And the reason I say that is because just getting God is a terrifying proposition, right? Yes. We don't just get God. We get God through the mediator who is Jesus Christ. And in order to get God, we also get the mediator who is Jesus Christ. And we can't take Christ without taking him as the God man, as he is, right? So so that's the, that's the genius of what Calvin is doing. And the Lutheran view and the Roman Catholic view, in fairness— don't say, well, you just get the human body of Christ. Of they both articulate that you're getting the whole person of Christ. But what Calvin does is he takes John 6, right? The, the classic text. And the question always comes up, well, is John 6 about the Lord's Supper or is it not? And the Roman Catholics say, well, of course it's about the supper. And, and other positions go, well, no, of course it's not. In reality, as Calvin is kind of saying, you're not really asking the right question. What does John 6 say about about the situation. What it says right. is you only, you only live if you have Christ, if you feast on Christ, if you eat his body, which is true food, if you, if you drink his blood, which is true drink. But the beauty of that is that we're not just talking about what we're eating. We're talking about who we are communing with. Yes. So Calvin, Calvin takes the debate from being about what, what is in the supper? What, what is it that you're eating? Are you eating body or are you eating bread and body or are you not eating either? You're just eating bread, right? He takes that debate and he flips it over and he says, wait a second here, guys. W what are we talking about here? Like, obviously, the, the communion is about Jesus. You get Jesus. And so so I just want to read a little bit about John 6, out of John 6 here. He says, so John 6, there's a lot going in John 6. It's a good text about predestination. It's a good text about election. But he will start in... Um, 
sort of in verse 25, he's talking about how the, the people come to him because they see signs and he says, I'm the bread of life. And they say, give us this bread always. Right. And then right. he's starting in verse 41. It says, so the Jews grumbled about him saying, I, because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They is this, not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. Right. So they're saying, wait a second here. You're saying you're the bread of life. We know where you come from. We know who your parents are. Right. And then um, he goes down to say in verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate men in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So no one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for life of the world is my flesh. So this text, rather than tell us about what's happening in the Lord's Supper, is setting up the framework for the symbolism and the signification that's happening in the Lord's Supper. So it's not the it's not that there's some sort of magical element happening in the supper where because we actually take Christ's body into our body and Christ's blood into our body, that somehow we gain life through it, right? That's the Roman Catholic view. Right. That Christ's body is so infused with grace that by taking that into our body, we actually are taking grace physically into our body. So much so that a, a non-Christian who eats a consecrated Lord's Supper is taking in grace into his body. And the Lutheran view, I know they would hate that I say this, but it's not all that different. And, and the same is true of baptism, right? That's why we say Lutherans affirm baptism or regeneration. There's some differences technically going on, but for the most part, they affirm the same thing. A reprobate person who takes the Lord's Supper is still taking the Lord's Supper. They're still receiving grace. Right. They just don't make use of that grace. Right. What Calvin is saying as he interprets texts like, texts like this is, wait a second here. When you participate in the sign, you're only participating in the sign and then participating in that which it signifies. If you believe that this sign actually signifies the thing that it signifies. Yes. So an, a, a, a situation that might be similar, it's not identical, but it might be similar. I'm wearing a wedding ring, right? It's a gold ring. It's it's very plain. It goes around my finger. I wore a ring very similar to this before I got married. Just a plain metal band around my hand. There's symbolism that was on the other hand, but it, it doesn't really matter if I wore it on my left or right hand, right? The only reason that this ring has any efficacy in terms of my marriage is because I believe it does, right? If someone else took this ring, if someone stole this ring from me and put it on their finger, it doesn't mean they're married to my wife. It means they have a piece of metal on their finger. But because I believe that this ring signifies the commitment that I made to my wife, it so signifies that I made that commitment. And by wearing this ring, I reinforce a reality that it points to. Now, in the Lord's Supper, something similar is happening in that there is a reality that this Lord's, that this eating this bread and drinking this wine or juice or whatever, um, that it, it points to. And by doing it in that fashion, with that intention, and by believing that it's true, it is true. And that's that's a strange concept for us to sort of think about, but that's that's what the reform position on the Lord's Supper says. And I think there is something, in fairness, that's intuitive to us about that, for, for those whom the Lord has regenerated. There's a sense that it's more than the, just this idea of some kind of memorial. It's right. not non-substantiation, and yet it's too far, again, a bridge across to talk about transubstantiation. And so there's this idea that there's a ground, it's grounded. I think even again, we're, we're, we have a proclivity to recognize that it's grounded in a distinction that does exist, 
between the sign and the seal, the bread and the wine, the elements, the things signified forgiveness through Christ's blood, the blood of the covenant, and then a sacramental union between the two, which is, that's where Jesus' words, of course, come into play. This is my body. And so, you know, when Jesus speaks of the bread as his body and the wine as his blood, the Reformed perspective takes him at his word without, and I think this is the essential element, no pun intended, without confusing the sign right, with the thing that's signified. Exactly. So this is actually different than memorialism, which practically inserts words basically such as, well, this represents my body to right. promulgate the view that nothing is received through partaking of the bread and the wine. So just as Paul calls Christ the rock, so too the bread is Jesus' body, not because the sign is like miraculously changed into the thing signified, as the Roman Catholic Church erroneous contends in transubstantiation, but because Christ can speak of the bread, which is the sign, as though it were the thing signified, which is his body, using the language of sacraments. Right. So because a true sacramental union exists between the sign and the thing signified, the bread can be spoken of as Christ's body, as Jesus does when instituting the sacrament itself. So right. that's what I find, as you're saying, so beautifully cohesive and cogent about this perspective. It wraps, it, I think it, it basically encapsulates and perfectly summarizes what the scripture, the whole scripture is teaching, like you said, not just about what Paul says and not just about what the Old Testament says, but brings everything together in unity and harmony in a perfect expression. And again, it must be compatible with itself. You know, like the Old Testament must perfectly describe what's happening in the New Testament, even with respect to the Lord's Supper. And the basically the grand arc of salvation that God is bringing about in history and his representation of it by way of the Passover and the Lord's Supper. So I think that this view is just, again, a perfect summary of what the yeah. scripture teaches. And that's its really great strength at the end of the day is, you know, all I was just talking with somebody actually this week who basically levied the criticism that. Calvinism or reformed theology is trying to answer every single question and it has an answer for every single question. And we would say, well, that's not true. That's not what we're saying at all. In this case, we're saying that the best expression of this, the best understanding of it is represented in everything that the reformed perspective is trying to summarize, especially represented or manifest in what Calvin has written. You all are sensible people read for yourselves and see, like we've had this conversation for, this is like the fourth week now. And I think every, even as we've talked about it, we tried to evaluate these different perspectives or paradigms. I think in every sense we've come up with, we're just shy. We're just short of what's really going on here. And in each of them, there was something that I think we felt that there was a longing of the human heart to try to get after what was the root but we ended up in the tree. We ended up in the branches and the leaves of that tree rather than at the root. And what I think Calvin has done is he's really gone deep. He's dug down really, really deep. And he's just said, what does the scripture say? And how does Jesus himself describe what is taking place here? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe just to go, go back to John six, because this, this I think is, is the strength of the reform position in this area. Right. So in John six, um, We'll start at verse 53 now. It says, So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And the reason I point this out and say that this supports the Reformed understanding, because the Roman Catholic has to read this as saying, for my, for, uh, for true food is my flesh, 
Right. And true blood or true drink is my blood. Right. They flip it around. So so the the drink is blood and the the bread is flesh, not flesh is food and, you know, drink uh, blood is drink. Right. And the Lutheran has to say something similar for you know, my flesh is added to true food and my flesh or my blood is added to to drink. Right. And then, of course, the non substantiationist view basically has to say my flesh is not true blood. You know, they have to deny this proposition. But what right. the reform view can do is say so Christ makes this statement that his flesh is true food, his his blood is true drink. And then when he institutes the Lord's Supper later, he now explains to the disciples privately how it can be said truly that those who partake of this supper actually do feast on Christ's flesh and drink of Christ's blood. It's not by some corporeal feasting. Right. It's not by some, some mere remembrance of the events of, of the death of Christ. It's by this sacramental union, this signification, right? The word sacrament in the original, uh, the original concept of that word sacramentum, you know, it, we, we always think about it in light of this, this debate, right? The, the original word sacrament is a pledge. It was like a, like a pledge or like a, almost like a badge that right. a soldier carried to identify which, uh, which battalion they were a part of. So it was an identification that, that constituted a reality. You know, I've said it before, like if I wear a blue polo shirt, then I'm just wearing a blue polo shirt. If I uh, am an employee of Best Buy and I clip that name tag to it, then that transforms it into a Best Buy uniform. Right. It's a totally it's a different a different reality is constituted because of the symbolism and the signification there. And so so the reform, you can look at a text like this and say Christ means exactly what he says. His body is true food, not 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 bread, not not some transformed bread, not some ordinary bread. His body is the true food. And then later on in the Lord's Supper, when he institutes the Lord's Supper and then when Paul uh, explains a little further in First Corinthians, what he's what's happening now is it's saying here is how even though Christ's body is in heaven right even though it is separated in terms of of space and dimension it's it's in a different place i can't take a bite of jesus right can't do it even even if that's what he meant i couldn't right. do it and if that's what he meant then we're all in a lot of trouble because nobody who doesn't do that has eternal life so right. instead i can spiritually feast on christ's body in a true and genuine sense by participating in the authorized sign that he has given us in order to do that. And when we do that by faith, that is when we, through that covenantal union, we are able to feast on Christ's body, which is the true food. We're able to drink of Christ's blood, which is the true drink that he's talking about. And I don't think that the other views can make sense of this. The no. Roman Catholic view has no. to basically say, Jesus, this is, this is Jesus talking about something that he's not actually going to institute for another, you know, another, uh, at this point, probably another couple years, right? He's not going to institute this. They have to say, this is, this text is about something else and flip it around. And the Lutherans, honestly, I don't know what they do with this. And I don't know exactly what the Zwinglians do either, but the reform view can make a fully orbed sense of how this text can be about exactly what it sounds right like on. it's about. Exactly. You don't have to do gymnastics trying to explain why this isn't about the Lord's Supper. It is. It's just sort of like the first phase of this overarching theology that he's unlaying of what it means and how we are able to feast in union with Christ.
Exactly. That's the beauty. It makes sense of everything that we're talking about here without conflating the sign and the significance of that sign. I I hope that like, as people are listening to this, they'll continue to really ponder and process some of what we talked about and then go back and even read more about these views. Again, we have such wonderful, sensible listeners. And so I think the beauty of this is trying to promote some conversation that pushes us in a direction where we are more thoughtful about what's happening the next time that we participate in the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day, we're gathered among the saints. Because I think the Lord's Supper for me is like in a bear market. There's, It's not that churches don't practice it. It's that I wonder if on average we have a really fully orbed understanding of what's taking place and if somehow we inadvertently and unwittingly cheaten the whole process or devalue it because we tend to have this American view or Western view, which is in the Protestant world at least, that this is mostly something that I do to remember or to appreciate God and what he's done for me. And that somehow the efficacious nature of it is wrapped up in how well I do at examining myself and remembering that this event took place. And it's really the Holy Spirit working through the word and not a priest or a minister that makes this sacrament efficacious for believers. God is the active party, not even the rememberer. Right. And this is why we must see like the Lord's Supper and the elements of the bread and the wine as gracious gifts from God to us as you said, as a physical manifestation of the realities of the blessings of the covenant of grace. And for people, you and I have been outspoken about how we understand, for instance, the second commandment, and that, for instance, images of Jesus being a violation of said commandment. And so we focused on that we apprehend things, we see things by faith and not through sight. And even with that said, God in his benevolent distance not only gave us his son, who is like us in humanity forever, what right. God has done that? Like, like Exodus talks about what God has led and rescued his people specifically. In the New Testament, we might equally say what God has identified himself forever with his creation, forever. And when we see, when we have the beatific vision, it's not that we'll see God because God is spirit. We will see God through the face of Jesus Christ, his right. son, who will have eyeballs and skin and fingernails and will be chilling But like us in a sense, (laughs) anticlimactic, but beyond that, he's been gracious in that benevolent distance to give us an actual physical sign that we might in a tactile way, of course, experience in our senses, taste, see, feel, hold in our hands. That is the Lord's supper. Yeah. And it is a mystical union, but it's, can I say it this way? Like not maybe as mystical as you think. Right. Because there's a tendency to make it all about something that's like, woo. Yeah. When really, this is God pushing forward on us and giving us a reminder that the covenant of grace is active and well and alive because Jesus is alive. And here's the way in which we celebrate it. And so it's, you can get caught up either in making it, it's all about me remembering and taking inventory. Those things are important. But at the same time, it's all about the mystical union that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ in the partaking of these elements. And it's just wonderful. Actually, I think there's a liberty in what you said, because there's, to me, there's actually more liberty in taking Jesus at his word and not conflating or confusing the two. That is such a beautiful weight that can be lifted off your shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, maybe to put a little bit of shoe leather on this, right? I mean, we, we love to be abstract and heady, but... We exist in a world right now where many churches are not able to gather. 
we right. exist in a world right now where even those churches that do gather, many of them are having to make difficult decisions about whether or not we do the Lord's Supper in a, an age of pandemic, whether we continue to do that. Lunchables? And, is that what you're talking about? Communion what was Lunchables? Communion Lunchables. Well, no, no. I mean, to, to we'll <laughs> talk kidding. about that. We'll, we'll get to Communion Lunchables. <laughs> oh, am I jumping the week. gun? Have we talked about that on this podcast yet? I, I think we've talked about it tangentially, but we'll, we'll probably okay. talk about like... Some Forget of these oddball everything questions. I said. Yes. Forget yes. everything I said. Please ignore the man behind the curtain. Yes. But where I was going with that is I don't know how Roman Catholics who can't partake of the Lord's Supper can can like live with themselves, to be honest with you. Well, and, we shouldn't and, be able to, right? Right. And I'm not I'm not 100% sure how Lutherans can either. Uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fine line here. But in both of those views the the means of grace is very concrete it's yes. very much if you don't if you can't do this for some reason then you you don't have the means of grace you you have no grace being administered through that channel and for for roman catholics the lord's supper is the primary means by which grace is delivered to god's people yes. and and in an age of pandemic i know I know there are Roman Catholic churches out there that have kind of said, forget about it. We're just going to keep doing it. And there are Roman Catholic churches that have said, you know, and to be fair, I don't want to misrepresent anyone's perspective here. It's not as though the Roman Catholic church thinks that God is somehow standing there wringing his hands going, oh man, what am I going to do? They can't eat this little piece of bread that, you know, uh, of course. Right. But, but in a very real sense, a disruption to the ability to partake in the Lord's supper is a real disruption to God's God's ability to deliver grace to his people. Yes. In both the Roman Catholic and the Lutheran view, the reform view, I think, has the benefit of still recognizing there is something that is very significant and special about this sacramental ritual, if you want to put it that way. This ritual that we do, it is a special thing and God is united to his people in a special way through this particular sanctioned ritual that he has given us. But if we are not able to do it, we don't have to lose sleep. Because right. God is still present among his people in the preaching yes. of the word, in, in the prayers of God's people. And so we don't have to worry about the fact that God, God has seen fit in many instances to close our pulpits, to close our ability to do the Lord's Supper. Even if we can gather, maybe we shouldn't be doing the Lord's Supper right now. We don't have to be slaves to this little piece of bread and this ritual which turns it into or adds the Lord to it. Instead, what we recognize is that even though there is a special, unique unity that comes about because of it, there's a special feature to it. Our union with Christ is not dependent in any sense on that outward action. Right. And so as important as it is, and we could say the same thing about baptism. Baptism right. is absolutely exactly. vital, but it doesn't it doesn't do anything in the sense that Roman Catholics and, and Lutherans want to say that it does. Right. And on the flip side... Uh, I don't understand why Zwinglians would really be all that upset about not being able to do the Lord's Supper. And many of them aren't. And that, that I think, is a, a different conversation. But, you know, I, I, there was lots of times where I just didn't go to church and I didn't care that I missed the Lord's Supper when I when I was in college and I didn't really understand this stuff. But now there's an, there's the Reformed position is in the sweet spot, I think, of recognizing that the church and the faith can go on without the Lord's Supper, but it is still a real loss. 
Yes. And I don't think that any of the competing views can really hold that position. And I think that that gives credence to what the scriptures have to say. The scriptures don't treat it like it's the, the end all be all. I mean, there's rel- there, there's comparatively little said about the Lord's Supper in, in the Bible directly. They don't treat it like it's the end all be all, but they also don't treat it like it's not a big deal. Right. So the, the reform position can make sense of the, the quantity and the relative emphasis in scripture and of the real loss that it is when we can't participate. And I think that that's something Christians right now maybe uniquely need to hear reform Christians need to hear is that it's okay. It's, it's not the end of the world. If your church right now says, you know what, maybe all of us taking our masks off and and putting up, you know, our fingers into our mouth and drinking out of this stuff. Maybe that's not the best idea right now. We can be sad about it and recognize that there's a real loss there, but we don't have to be like existentially angsty about it the way that I think Lutherans and Roman Catholics probably should be, even if they aren't. Right. I agree with you. Well, I think maybe you inadvertently coined another great potential bumper sticker the Lord's Supper. It's kind of a big deal. <laughs> it is kind uh, of a big deal. I like that. And if nothing else, people can go back to another episode that we did that was just about intinction, which we haven't yes. covered here because we really have covered it elsewhere. But maybe if anything, one of the small silver linings of this pandemic is that maybe intinction has been purified among some, no pun intended, congregations. They got that <laughs> noise out of there. Maybe. But maybe, maybe you're listening to this. Maybe you listen to us for these four episodes and you've thought... I have random questions about the Lord's Supper. Questions I dare not ask to anybody, but I would publicly ask on a podcast. <laughs> so if that's you, then you are among the very fortunate because we want to finish this out with an episode that looks just at, it's, we're going to call it what? Question cast, the communion question cast or something yeah, like that. Some, yeah. I'll think of something clever or not yeah. clever, probably not clever. Well, I'm sure we'll think of something clever four or five weeks after we, we air that episode. Yeah, probably. So what you can do and what you should do, please, because we want to hear from you if you have questions about this that you want to hear us talk about, to bring about all kinds of crazy conversation, call us, leave a voicemail. It's just that simple. And here's the number. It's 607-444-2767. Yes. And you know, my hope is that we get lots and lots of questions. Yes. There's, there's probably like categories of questions that are going to come in. So even if we don't pick your specific question, there's a good chance that if you call and ask us a question, it's going to get answered. So don't be offended if we don't pick your particular soundbite. But, um, you know, I'm looking forward to it because I think there are a lot of questions that they don't feel like they're significant. And what I'm looking forward to is being able to sort of trace a little bit about why some of the common questions that come up fall in kind of that wrong question category. Sure. They're, they're kind of like presupposing a view of the Lord's yes, Supper that isn't course. actually even the reform view. Um, but also there are just some practical questions that come up. Lunchable communion is one of them. Like many yes. churches have gone to these single self-serve communions. Our church has, so there's no judgment if your church is one of those. These little self-serve communion cups that have a, a juice and a wafer kind of all in self-encapsulated lunchable form. Like, What's the deal with those? Is that okay? Is that not okay? What are the implications? I just kind of <laughs> did like a little. Sounds cycle. like you're doing a Seinfeld What's sketch the right deal there with Lunchables. <laughs> that was the worst Seinfeld. That was great. So let me ever. let me prime the pump 
but I'm going to give a couple examples of questions. And again, these could be just wild questions. Maybe I, because we all know that if you've been a Christian for any length of time and you've partaken in the Lord's Supper, you probably had one of these types of questions before, something within this realm. I'm going to throw a couple out, but we're not going to answer these unless people actually call in right. and want to talk about them. So, And we have an email address, but we're not even going to give it to you. Because we want to hear your voice. So you've got to call 607-444-2767. Leave us a voicemail. But here's some questions you might want to know. Something like, hey, as Tony said, hey, what's up with the Lunchable thing? Or how about this question? Should we have wine or should we have grape juice? Does it matter? Or how about this question? Can the bread have gluten in it? Or what if the bread doesn't have gluten in it? Is right. it still communion? All these are on the table. Yes. So please call us with all of your questions and we'll have, even if we have to do it like, I love, Tony's just shaking his head. Even if we have uh, to do it like popcorn style, we've already got a couple of questions, but I'm eager. I know they're out there. I know yes. you people have questions and that you're wondering the same things I am. So uh, let's, let's hear them and let's talk about them. And I'll say this. If there are enough questions to justify multiple question episodes, we will do multiple <laughs> yes. question episodes. So, so yes. please, no matter how out there your question is, uh, please call and ask because we'll we'll answer we'll, we'll categorize them, but we'll answer every like actual question that comes in. We yeah. might even answer some jokey questions if you have joke questions. Well, that's what I'm saying that people should do that. So, and I have to give everybody a little inside baseball because with, this is of importance, and we'd be on a time schedule. So, what you all may realize is that Tony, and I usually record on the weekend. The episode airs midweek on Wednesday. So that really means you have actually a short window to get to us. So some t- you may be thinking, I will just call when I get home or I'll just call in a couple of days or I'll call and I think about it. Pull over the car right now. Yes. Dial this number. Put it actually put it in your contacts because you're going to talk to us a lot. We yes. want to hear from you. It's 607-444-2767. I love that. I wish, I mean, this is a great number. I actually, I don't know what, do you know what area code 607 is? I think like, it's New normally? York. Oh, is it really? Okay. Yeah. That's kind of unfortunate. Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> it is. Cut to all the, our wonderful New York brothers and sisters who are like, Hey. Yeah. The, the uh, distilling theology guys are like, what are you guys talking about? Man? <laughs> So call the number, please. 607-444-2767. Leave us your question about the Lord's Supper. And I'm really excited for a a wonderful episode. I hope that people will be unashamed in their questions. Just ask away. You don't even have to leave your name. Just leave a first name. Make up a name. Yeah. Yeah. Please make up a name. Please. Yeah, please. (laughs) We're just (laughs) setting this up to be the most ridiculous question cast ever. Yeah. Why not? Make up a name. And... uh, yeah, let's we'll uh, wait to hear from you. How do we how do we end this episode, Jesse? I don't I, even know. I think I think we just did. I think the best way to end it would be to say this. Until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.